In late May, Football New South Wales celebrated its largest ever female football week in the lead-up to the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023. In addition to the community celebrations taking place across the country, Football New South Wales hosted a series of panels focusing on various participation opportunities that exist across the sport. This episode of the Football New South Wales Community Podcast recaps the Women in Sports Media Panel, hosted by media personality and Football New South Wales Deputy Chair Stephanie Brantz. The panel featured football commentator Grace Gill, ABC journalist Samantha Lewis, and Football Australia Women's Football and Community Media Manager Anna Dong. Welcome to all of you. First of all, for anyone I haven't met personally, I'm Steph Brantz. Um, absolutely pumped that we can be here at, at Football New South Wales to celebrate women's football and an area that's very close to my heart. And we are, of course, on Darug land. I acknowledge the Darug as the traditional custodians of this land in and around Football New South Wales and Valentine Sports Park. I pay respects to their elders past and present, their ancestors, those that hold a continuing cultural and spiritual connection to country and extend that to anyone of Aboriginal First Nations and Torres Strait Islander descent who's with us today. Now, I think my story is relatively boring in comparison to these three, but just for some context, I've been working in football media since about 1998, yep, last century, and uh, I started, which makes me feel much older than I thought I did. I started my uh, football media career with SBS, which was really an ideal place to start. I sat alongside the likes of Les Murray and Johnny Warren and Craig Foster and really learnt some serious history about football, but I didn't get to talk about women's football at all. So it's amazing that we can do it now, we're celebrating it now, and there's so much to talk about. Uh, From SBS, I went to Channel 9, then Fox Sports, uh, ABC and I'm, I've been freelance for about 15 years now but uh, I write for ESPN FC and have currently other other gigs and with full disclosure I'm deputy chair of the board here so, so full transparency. <laughs> Not bribed into coming to do this though, don't worry. <laughs> uh, so I had a, a, a really exciting, um, inspiring and fascinating time being able to watch not just football grow because we we know the history of football in this country but when I was at SBS it was they called us you know SBS soccer bloody soccer or sex before soccer because of what came on (laughs) after (laughs) but uh, there was you know we had a six-hour show called the world game on a Sunday and apart from that not much other other coverage so I happened to be there when the Socceroos qualified for the World Cup 2006 in Germany, first time in 32 years, and all of a sudden there was this upswell of interest. So it was wonderful to be able to be part of that journey as media and then to see the rise and rise of women's football and the fact that you're all here, you know where women's football is and you, you know how fabulous it is and, and how excited we are to be certainly following the Matildas through a home World Cup, which uh, I'm worried might be the only one in my lifetime, but certainly for some of you... Uh, <laughs> Hopefully it'll be uh, something we do see again. And uh, I think it's interesting when we were looking at some stats from Football New South Wales, we had, uh, how many women do you think we had involved in our in our coverage, in our media coverage in 2022? The fact you can't think of one is absolutely accurate because it was zero. <laughs> so the following year we had a couple and and it was really great to hear that uh, certainly in the in the NPL last weekend uh, we had uh, parity between the genders so we, we've come certainly a very long way and I think it's really great that we're hearing three different stories now these women 
work across different platforms, but for the purpose of today, I'm going to talk to Sam Lewis from the ABC about uh, journalism and, and print journalism and the work she does in that space and in the digital space. Uh, Grace Gill, you know, is uh, Channel 10 Paramount in, in her current role. She's been with me on the ABC and we did Fox Sports. And we'll talk about the broadcasting side and um, panelling and, uh, and commentary. And Anne's done literally everything there is to do in sports media. <laughs> so, so we'll talk um, through, it's really interesting because Annie does uh, photography as well, of course. So we'll talk about uh, the photography space for women and also the digital space. And then we'll get a little bit of insight into what it's like to be Matilda's media manager, which I think is super cool. So Sam, you're first cab off the rank. Oh boy. You, okay. two, you two get comfy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Sam, you started life uh, in, was it literature? Was that what you were studying at university? Yes, <laughs> yes, it was literature. Um, Ten years of it, in fact. I was halfway through a PhD in literary studies before I completely pivoted to sports journalism, which in hindsight was a ridiculous decision and it was very <laughs> risky. Um, got you a night out at Valentine's Sports Club. <laughs> <laughs> what more could you want? <laughs> Um, but it was, it's interesting because I, I sort of, when I'm asked a question about how did I start in this industry, I, I kind of have to recontextualize things for myself because I never studied journalism. I never thought that journalism was something I would ever enter into. I never thought that women could write about football when I was studying. And I had every intention on becoming an academic and being in a crusty old office and wearing jackets like this and you know writing papers <laughs> that 10 people are going to read. That was my that was my goal. Um, but uh, football was always something that I loved so deeply and I wrote about it because I loved it. I did you know I didn't care that I didn't get paid for it I was writing blogs and I was tweeting and I was I was just engaging because it was the thing that I loved on the side of what I thought was going to be my career and then I think for probably similar situation for a lot of us I've had a couple of major sliding doors moments over the course of my sort of professional life where mm. I had to make a decision so my big sliding doors moment came in 2019 when I went to France to the Women's World Cup and up until that point I'd been writing it sound like you went as a player <laughs> when I went to the World Cup. <laughs> when I went to the World Cup. Um, no, so I, I went there um, and I, I was halfway through my studies. I, I put my PhD on hold for a, a couple of months just because I, I felt like I needed a break. I was quite burnt out um, and I was just going over there with some friends. So I was going over there for a holiday. I'd been writing about women's football um, voluntarily for the women's game for Beyond 90. I'd been tweeting about it. I'd never been paid a cent for it, but it was just something that I loved. And when we went there, it was when Optus Sport had just started up here in Australia and they were broadcasting the Women's World Cup back here. And there was a tweet that went out from the Optus account saying, hey, if anyone has a pitch and an idea for stories, then let us know. And I was like, <laughs> well, I'm like going to the tournament that you're broadcasting, so why don't I like write... I don't know, a travel column, which is about what it's like to follow your national team overseas. And they were like, yeah, sounds good. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I don't have to do it. Oh, no. So I ended up writing this series when I was in France called The View from the Cheap Seats, which was about my experience following the Matildas through that tournament and all the ups and downs turned out to be. Um, and when I got back, I had all of these emails and messages from people saying, oh, we really enjoyed your writing. Would you be keen on doing X, Y, Z? And I was like, 
yes, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so yeah, tell me more. And so I spent the next couple of months after I got home reaching out to every single sports editor that I ever knew saying, what are you doing about women's football? What are you doing about the Matildas? What are you doing about the W League? Are you doing anything? I can help. I can do it for free. I don't care. <laughs> I just wanted to go 110% at it for a couple of months and just see what happened. And I think a, a big part of why it worked is because it was just the luck of the timing because people were really starting to pay attention to the Matildas. They were really starting to pay attention to the women's game. And I was there being like, I'm here, pick me, I can do it, I can do whatever you want type of thing. And so within probably six months, um, I was writing for The Guardian, I was writing for ESPN, I was writing for SBS, I was writing for ABC, um, in all in a freelance capacity, um, just because I was so fiercely intent on making this thing work. I think partly because I knew my PhD was like falling by the wayside and so I didn't have any other choice. Um, and so by the, ed the end of 2019, early 2020, I, I had a, a very um, frank conversation with my PhD supervisor where he was like, look, this is sort of the pivot point for you. You're halfway through this thing. Either you decide to finish it all or you quit now and you go and do this other thing. And by the way, uh, higher education is a bit of a bin fire. So I probably suggest you going and doing this other thing because it seems like you really love it. And that was a really important conversation for me because I needed that perspective and that validation from someone else to tell me that this thing that I loved doing was actually worth it. And so I quit. I quit my PhD and then I, I decided to freelance full time, um, earning absolute peanuts. So I earned so little money in my first full year of freelancing that I couldn't even pay tax. How little I earned. Didn't need to pay tax or couldn't pay tax. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, Sam, that's an interesting one, particularly if any of you are, are, are sort of where we've all been when you're looking to break into a career. At what point do you get to a stage where you're like, I need to be paid or I'm comfortable being asked to be paid for my work? Yeah, it's a really good question. It was something that I struggled to figure out for myself and I think it was largely because I didn't really have any reference points for that I didn't really know anyone else who was doing what I was doing and because I was writing in a very niche space it was something that wasn't really as highly valued as anything else um, so I, I tried to be quite strategic about it I think I, I made sure I actually had a sticky note on my computer listing all of the publications that I wrote for uh, in order of how much they paid per story. Mm -hmm. And so if I came up with an idea, I would pitch it to the first publication. If they said no, I'd go down the list, <laughs> going all the way to, even if it was like 50 bucks, at least it was something. Um, and uh, like, I don't think there was ever really a, a, like a specific point where I sort of realized that I could start asking for a bit mm -hmm. more money. I think it was just trying to accumulate it while building my profile mm. at the same time because back then I was no one. I was it? just someone who was yelling on Twitter a lot and, you know, people knew me for that. Um, for, so, for context, though, a, a lot of publications have a set rate for an article, don't yes, they? Yes, they do, um, which is great. And it's, it's constantly improving as well at a couple mm. of major masters, which is really exciting. Um, and more and more people, particularly over the last sort of three to four years, more and more editors are really – active in trying to find people to write about the women's game. Mm. Whereas back when I started, you had to approach them. You had to say, mm. what are you doing about this? Because they just weren't interested because it doesn't get the clicks, it doesn't get the revenue, mm. it doesn't get the whatevers. Um, but and you we, have to lay the groundwork in order for them yep. to start to turn it around. 
And with the websites popping up, there's so many more opportunities. Unfortunately, people think because it's on the web that you don't put as much work in, so they don't have to pay as much. But uh, mm. that's changing as well. I remember uh, way back in a long time ago, uh, there was a publication called Australian Football Weekly. And I remember them ringing me and asking me to write. It wasn't about women's football. It was just about football, whichever, whatever took my fancy. And they said, it's 20 cents a word. I was like, great, I'm going to give them 10,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, they only wanted 500 words. So <laughs> that wasn't actually up to me. But I feel like it's become a little bit more, more standardised. Do you need mm. to ask for that? Or do they say, we want a piece on this and this is how much you'll be paid? Well, that was what I noticed um, in terms of, I suppose, the transition and me building my profile was that I started out by pitching constantly to people, but then they reached a sort of a tipping point where editors were coming to me mm -hmm. and saying, we want you to write about Ellie Carpenter. We want you to write about the W League final. We want you to write about something. And when that happened for me, that was incredibly validating because that mm -hmm. sort of made me realize that I had broken into something and I'd mm -hmm. broken some kind of ceiling. Um, but in terms of payment, it was all standardised. I don't know any publications except maybe for the Saturday paper that pay per word anymore. And that's also, I think, a reflection of media generally. Mm. Um, traditional journalism is going down the toilet in a lot of ways. Mm. And, they're, and they're having to find ways to, to try and generate revenue and to balance budgets and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's still incredibly tricky to mm. break into a space like this. Um, and I think the people that succeed are the ones that have good timing. Um, they are the ones who know what they're talking about. They, they know their voice, they know their niche, they know their pocket of information and they're able to be strategic about who they pitch stories to. And mm. they're able to navigate those kind of cobwebs of all the different networks and editors and, and all that sort of stuff really well. When we talk about a deadline, which is a word that comes up frequently when you look at uh, sports journalism, uh, tell us about the different types of things you've been asked to do. You've mentioned your opinion pieces and your profile pieces on players. Mm. Uh, things like uh, match reports, which you do like 10 seconds after the match. <laughs> Or during I, the match? <laughs> I hate match reports. I hate anything that's on the whistle. Um, I can't do it. My brain just doesn't. I've had to do it a couple of times, I remember, and, and just being so, just so stressed. It, it, I, like, so there, okay. My brain. You'll love it. My brain me. just doesn't work. So there, there are different types of journalism, right? The, the, the kind of stories that I'm really interested in are the ones that are feature length, their profiles, their interviews, mm. their history pieces, their stories that I can research and work on for a while. I can craft the sentences mm. and coming from my background in literature, that's really what I love. I love being big able words. to using my big <laughs> words, painting an image, you know, doing all that sort of story work. <laughs> but uh, so you've got those sorts of pieces that take time um, and that are usually a bit lengthy. A match report, which is particularly a match report on the whistle, is it's a different kind of skill. It's mm. a skill that's about summarizing. It's about really finding the absolute bones of what just happened and being able to put it down in a chronology and being able to push the big button as soon as the whistle goes so that whoever missed the game can immediately get, basically just get a summary of what's just mm. happened. The best match report writers are ones who can weave a retelling of the match with analysis mm. of the match. Um, and the absolute cream of the crop, someone like Jonathan Liu at The Guardian mm. can whip up an analysis piece like that on, within half an hour of the final whistle, which is extraordinary. I don't know how it goes. And, and we've got a few in Australia that can do it. I always find the most amusing thing is when I used to sit in the commentary box because the media box was often next to you and you'd be 
match would go on and go on and go on and you think, oh, it's over, you know, trying to sound, you know, oh, this is so exciting, it's gripping, they could come back into this. And then there is a late goal <laughs> yeah. or and that's the two worst. red cards or something and you just see everyone in the next box just go, <laughs> because quite frankly, they had already crafted how this was beginning, how it was ending and the narrative that they were going to use to tell this tale. So that can yeah. be uh, that can be quite stressful. Uh, how about uh, your experience? You went to Qatar mm. as part of the travelling media pack. How did you find reporting on a World Cup? Weird. It was weird. I think largely because it was... The place or the job? Um, it was... It, well, it was both. kind of both. Yeah, it was kind of both. So... I don't really count France as my first World Cup because I, it was sort of my first anything in women's football. It was Were my you first credit media. No, I wasn't. No, okay. I was just there as a fan. And so just to clarify, I think you probably all know credit media when you apply for accreditation and you can go into the press box, you yeah. can go into the mix zone. And Access to coaches yeah. and players yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So no, so I was just a fan and I was just writing from the stands. Um, so Qatar was, was my first World Cup and... I've, I, I think it was only really after I came back that I sort of had the space to um, really think about what had just happened to me. Mm. It felt like an event that happened to me. I was sort of thrown into this thing which was so ethically compromised in so many ways and it, it, it was really difficult to participate in that and to reconcile it with some of the amazing things that happened there, like the Socceroos. Like I was there to watch that happen to the team that was my start in football. Like you mentioned the when qualifying after 32 years, that was my football moment. I remember exactly where I was when that thing happened. That's the reason why I'm a football person because of that moment. And so f to be there for that, which was better than that moment in a lot of ways, it, but happening in that context was really mm. hard. And I'm st I still struggle to to kind of unwrap it all and and to think about it and how like how do you value something that happened in such an important and such a special way in a in a, a an environment and in a tournament that was so tarnished and so tainted by so much else that was happening so I really struggled with that um sort of from a personal point of view I think mm -hmm. professionally it was also really uh, it was a trial by fire in a lot of ways because you don't sleep very much when you're in tournament mode, um, particularly in a place like Qatar where everything was in the same city. So you were constantly going out to press conferences or other games or whatever, or there were fan events or something that was on. Mm. And so you were just going by adrenaline and really bad coffee as well. Mm. And you just had to keep going and going because that's because that's what you were there to do. Um, so I learned a lot. I learned a lot, particularly traveling with people like Tracy Holmes, who's an absolute legend of sports journalism and seeing how she works behind the scenes, seeing yeah. how she works in the field was really educational for me. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was just, that was the thing that I think it took away the most from it was just absorbing how it feels to be in the thick of a, a moment like that, an event like that. And still having to produce work that was the thing that I struggled with I think because I'd never been in such a pressure cooker environment like that mm. with expectations of having to produce something of good quality almost every single day that was really hard. So if you look at your young career I think we can call it that because it's four years since you ditched your PhD yeah. uh, would you have done anything differently if you started it now? Oh in what sense? What do you mean? Would you have changed the way you approached it? 
would you have gone for the million bucks first? <laughs> Obviously, that's what ABC pays. Um, <laughs> honestly, no, I don't think so. I'm, I, I've spoken to people about um, about journalism and, and studying journalism, and I've, I've given advice and I've received emails from students in high school, all these sorts of things, saying, you know, what, what should I do? I want to be a sports journalist. I want to write about football. What should I do? And my advice to them never starts off with study sports journalism because I think a lot of sports journalism courses in universities are still quite behind the times. They're not really sort of giving you the skills or the experience that you need to actually work in this place. And it it sort of depends on the kind of journalist that you want to be as well. I think the journalist that I've become is a result of my education. It's a result of coming through literature. It's a result of you know, doing a PhD and understanding how stories work and crafting language and, and being able to argue and knowing how to pitch an idea. All that stuff mm. is stuff that I learned actually studying literature, not studying any journalism. Um, so I, my, my biggest advice, I think, to, to most sort of budding journalists is read. You have to mm. read a lot and you need to read not just journalism, but you need to read books, you need to read literature, you need to watch movies, you need to understand how to tell a good story. Mm. Because ultimately, my guiding question, my driving light is how do I get people to care about this thing that I care about? And the only way that I know how is to tell a really good story. Mm. So that's why I try to tell people. And it's never too late to change careers. I was a naturopath for 10 years before I went into sports journalism. <laughs> It is sliding doors moments. Grace Gill, you were a player. You had the inside running into knowledge of the game. What made you decide that you wanted to explore sports media? Well, first of all, can we give Sam a round of applause? Because it's been an (laughs) awesome, awesome progression. So thank you, Sam. Um, I didn't have a clear point in my journey of becoming transitioning out of being a player into broadcast and, and media. And I've been asked this question about how I actually got into commentary a lot in recent months and when I reflect on it an answer I often give is that it was in my tail end of my time with Canberra United and it was a time when I was not playing much I was injured I was in the stands and there was an opportunity where someone was unavailable and I got almost like a last minute call up hey do you want to try this thing and I thought oh yeah I'll give that a go but when I reflected a little more deeply on that journey I think it started a long time before then because before commentary I would sit in the stands whether I was injured or not being selected and this was a day when the W League would have one game on ABC and that was it so if your game wasn't the game that was being televised on ABC it was up to people at the stadiums either live blogging or tweeting which not many people did and this is kind of a nice full circle moment because you were all part of that (laughs) early early journey but as a player and this is also at a time when players in the stands could have their phones I had my phone and I would tweet of the game still as a, a live Canberra United player and it was a yeah so and <laughs> having conniptions going you mean you had your phone now you're not allowed your phone as a player but I would sit in the stands either injured or not selected and I'd tweet what was happening in this Canberra United game in front of me at McKellar Park so I think my journey into engaging with fans and sharing the stories of the game happening before me actually happened years before I first held a microphone. And when I reflected more deeply on that, it was sharing that and seeing what was happening before me and doing it in a way that I could engage with a community that cared about it long before it was very, very visible and very, very accessible. 
What did you find the biggest challenges when you came through? Because I think there's an expectation that players will know what to say about the game, but to know how to craft your words when you're watching something and knowing that you've got a lead commentator, say at the, the beginning, you're obviously doing lead comms now and we'll get to that in a moment, but your role is to wait a beat, then pick up and what you say will most likely be on the news feed after a goal. And that was always the thing I found the most mm. nerve-wracking about commentary. It was like, don't screw up the mm. one line when they score. And it's quite hilarious because when you hear commentators go, goal, and you're like, <laughs> that was all I had at the time. <laughs> and the temptation to do that was quite strong. But the ones that can craft a beautiful line to sum up that moment, that's the the holy grail, I think, of commentary. So what did you find the most challenging about learning your craft mm. as an expert commentator? <clears throat> well, I'd say I, um, I'm still learning. and We're I, all still learning. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I'm, I'm far from perfected that. But I think when I look back, back and think back on challenges, there's a couple. And the, the one that first comes to mind when I started and was still playing and then retired from Canberra United was that separation from being Grace Gill, the Canberra United player, to Grace Gill, the commentator. Because for a long time it was, oh, we, us, as in us, Canberra United. Yeah. <laughs> there's probably a year or two where that was something I really had to work hard to iron out of my commentary. And for so many years of my life and a team that's dear to my heart it was so hard to detach from mm. that but that was probably the first challenge as I came into commentary but then after that it was about learning from people around me learning from other commentators whether that be lead commentators or co-commentators and a journey in my life in commentary that I've noticed I now watch a game and I'm watching the game but my first conscious thought is listening to the commentary and the play is almost secondary and that's just a learning experience for me. So I think... It'll often lead you to push mute as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a bit of that. There's a bit of that. But it is genuinely... Um, yeah, and to your point about, you know, when to pause, when to speak, that's just repetition of practice. And I've been doing it for a number of years now. So you see people come in for the first time in a commentary booth and whether that be at NPL or with the A-Leagues and then understand whether a producer's in the ear telling them what to do, when to do it, when to score and pause. And what I mean by that is when to say the score and literally pause so that the feed that's been shown to everyone else can go elsewhere. And But when you first step into a commentary box, they're the things you don't know. And now for me, they're second nature and I'm still picking up and learning from, you know, world-class lead commentators around me as well as a myriad of co-commentators who I might listen to something and go, wow, that sounds really great. Well, that's a beautiful way to articulate that. And then I think about how I can incorporate some of that into my commentary. How challenging is it to... Uh, critically analyse and, and I, I use that not saying critically as a bad thing but we became so used to in the early years particularly on the ABC there weren't enough people following women's football and this was obviously the W League at the time and, and there was this innate sense of I must be a cheerleader and tell everyone how fabulous even if it was the most crap game you've ever seen in your <laughs> life it was like oh these girls are wonderful and I think the game's grown up but as a former teammate of these players, how difficult do you find it to actually yeah. be objective? Yeah, extremely. And again, that was probably something that I struggled with more so at the start of my career because these were girls I either were former teammates of or friends of or I'd played against for years and years and years. So to speak of them critically was something that I, I struggled with and I struggled. Did you get nasty phone calls afterwards? No, I didn't. I didn't because I think I think there's a way in which you can 
analyze a game, um, whether that's as a commentator or a pundit, that is really respectful. Because ultimately, as a former player, I know that if I made a mistake, I would, I, I would know that and you would be your harshest critic. So for a commentator to come down really hard on you in a way that I think is unreasonable, I think there's a line there and I think it's a really uh, careful nuance that you get right over years and sometimes I don't get it right, but I think it's my job to analyse a game as well and I'm not going to sit there as a, as a cheerleader because if someone isn't performing up to what we know to be their standard, the right thing to do is to talk about that because that's the respect that they sort of mm. deserve as a player to be looked upon and say, well, we know where they can be. And, but there is a way that you can talk about that. And you, you hear, and everyone in this room knows that there's different commentators have different styles. Some are really crash and bash and will come down hard on, on, on players and others will dance around it a little bit and not say anything bad about players. But I think you can be critical in a way that is respectful of the player, but honest to anyone who's listening to the game at home. I think also uh, that your commentary style might not be everyone's taste. And I don't think you can take that to heart because everyone has commentators they love and they hate. And as I said, that's why there's a mute button there. But uh, it's, uh, I think being one of those commentators, say, for example, a World Feed commentator, you don't know who they are, but they are literally just calling the game because that's all they see. And I think during the, uh, I know when I came home from Qatar, there was a girl calling some Socceroos games. I had no idea who she was and she clearly didn't know any of the players so she just called the game and I thought that was really quite refreshing and that was a craft that she'd clearly clearly learned mm. and I think that the other thing that I can stress uh, because Grace is probably not going to blow her own trumpet but when you've got a knack for it I think letting people know that you're you're keen to be engaged and you want opportunities is, is really important because when I was commentating at both Fox and ABC and I'd been put into a lead comms role that I was learning because I think you might have been my first co-commentator. I was like, we have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so it was a learning experience uh, basically for both of us because I'd been a sideline reporter and a, and a host or an anchor. And then as we went through, because I was the one contracted to ABC and Fox Sports, they were like, you know, who would you like to call with you? And I was like, well, I feel comfortable with Grace and we have a, a, a good rapport and that meant that basically every time I was able to request a, a co-coms, Grace would get it. So creating a, a relationship with people is is actually really important as well. Mm -hmm. and, but Grace, you've expanded so far beyond beyond those days, which feels like it was only yesterday, it was a few years ago now, uh, from the co-coms role to uh, hosting, being on a panel and now lead comms. Is this the trajectory you thought it would go? And is this, if you had your time over and, and looked at it and thought, yeah, this is what I want to have a crack at, is that the same way you would have liked to, to approach it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'd change the trajectory in which it has gone and... Um, Lead commentary has never been in part of my plans. As such, I haven't been aspiring to, to be a lead commentator. But again, it was a sliding doors moment and it was a, um, across this most recent season, a moment where someone was unavailable for a game and someone said, well, do you want to have a go at lead commentary in five days' time? And I was like, okay, let's give that. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, so a very much thrown into the deep end type situation and look I find for myself if I'm a little bit uncomfortable that's where I, I see a lot of personal growth mm. and again there's probably a fine line and balance of is this too soon or can I do this am I am I putting myself in a really vulnerable position or is this just a bit uncomfortable because I feel a bit vulnerable and a bit exposed because it's something I've never done before on 
a live stream and mm. it was the latter for me but I thought I, I will give it a go and it was an eye-opening moment uh, to the lead commentators in the room it's a really tough job and the amount of research and homework and preparation that goes into one call was pretty mind-blowing um, I am really glad that I did it but I, I've also had an opportunity to learn from people such as yourself Steph and other people across Didn't learn the a lot years. From me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd argue I'd argue that's not right but um, I work alongside some very very talented and experienced lead commentators that I've been able to pick up little pieces of information in a story mm journey that I can sit next to someone and say oh that sounds really cool I see how they've done that and you'd be amazed what you hear and what is actually going on behind a mm. camera and for us not on camera when you know when there's a big goal some commentators have that completely pre-prepared mm. ready to go with a script others just do it off the cuff off the cuff or just instinct and whatever comes out to your point you know whether it's goal or whether it's yeah. a name or whether it's a moment or whether it's a pregnant pause is sometimes they're the most beautiful parts of a game mm. is knowing when to actually just let the crowd noise fill that space yeah. and they're all things that you know I'm, I'm still learning as part of my commentary journey. And the nuances to the game which is why I think it's important to watch other sports and what they're doing because you hear different ways to approach things and, and football we always talk about the thirds you know when it's in the back line and they're just passing it back and forth it's lower and you build and you build so if someone is in the next room they know the ball is going towards the goal and and that build of the the excitement and and I think you make a really good point about learning from other people. In fact, there's two points that that I want to make uh, just before we come back to uh, your own story, Grace, and you touched on it. Never say no. If you're being given the opportunity, admit that you have no idea because that call I got from the executive producer of Fox Sports saying, we've decided it's time a female is the lead commentator. I went, yeah, it's a great idea. And he went, you're actually the only one that could probably do it. And I went, you've got to be joking. <laughs> Um, so I had a very, very quick crash course with, I think it was Sarah Walsh sitting on my couch at home. We had a game on mute calling it together. Then we got called into the ABC because they just wanted to check that we were actually going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was really interesting, but it was the first time that I paid real attention to what the lead commentators do with their research. Cause I would take a folder with, I had an encyclopedia, not in here, in front of me to find that in the moments of the game and then realize the ball's gone the other end of the pitch and you're going, I haven't found that for how old is she? <laughs> and it was quite, uh, yeah, it, it was intimidating at the time, but also that, that excitement, that fun. And then you learn what in your research is actually going to be important. And as the worst case scenario, just call the game in front of you mm -hmm. and, and know the players' names, and I think that calling a player, anyone that calls a player that scored a goal, you know they are damn sure that that player has scored the goal because that is your biggest nightmare—a goal mouse scrambling. You go, I've got no idea who stuck that in, <laughs> but that's that. The, taking those opportunities, I don't, I don't think you should ever be afraid of giving a crap. What's the worst that can happen? You know, you think, oh, well, it's not my bag. I'll go back to what I was doing or, or do something else. And and the other thing is watching what other people do. My first lead commentator that I worked with uh, in a, a broadcast environment was Peter Wilkins, who was employed because they had that ability to really lift his voice and make the most mediocre play sound like it was the most exciting, you know, akin to a World Cup type moment. His research was hilarious. He had this manila folder and you couldn't read it. It was scribbled everywhere. It was just all over the place uh, and he knew exactly where to pick a fact. John Champion, you know, very ordered, all his facts on two pages. Simon Hill, one page, it's ant scroll, you can barely read it, but it's meticulous. And then because they're doing those matches over and over and again, they've only got the pertinent facts. 
they've got who played in this team last week, um, what the changes are for this week and everything else they actually already know. But you have to build that. So I think that that is a really important skill. But Grace, you've come so far in what is really a relatively short space of time to, to make those leaps and bounds. And um, I've watched you with great delight on Dubzone, which looks like a, a whole lot of fun. How do you think broadcasting's changing, particularly for the women's game? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I think if we take Dubzone as an example, it's the first time we've had a show where there's most largely women, um, Teo as well, the exception to... Token bloke, <laughs> But I think having a football discussion show, if we'd said 10 years ago, we're going to have a show where there's four football heads sitting on a couch talking about the games of the weekend prior or ahead or reviewing the games, we would have been like, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a really cool concept. And for the first year of Dubzone, it was always going to have, you know, some teething problems and some things we needed to iron out like any new product does. But I think the actual concept of what, we're trying to put out there with talking about football in Australia, touching important topics from across the world, talking about the hottest stories. That's really important to the discussion in our country, not just in the A-League, but in the, for the Matildas as well and for what they're doing overseas. And I think um, if that's a sort of starting point for Dubzone or whatever iteration of that may be, that's, that's a great thing for us to be able to have that. But I think broadcast, again, uh, A-Leagues this year we've seen many more women involved in commentary not not my, not just myself but other mm. three other women in lead commentary roles that's something that we've not had before mm. with those kind of numbers so the fact that the league is now investing in women to get involved in commentary that's so so important and i think this world cup in just a few weeks months sorry Anne, time um, 58 days, 58 days, not 58 days it's there um I think this will be the first World Cup that if we turn on the telly and we hear a lead female comms, it won't be jarring. It won't be, oh, there's a woman calling. It will just be, cool, there's a woman calling. And that is a huge moment because mm. even in 2019, had there been a woman's voice on commentary, it would have been a big thing. Oh, there's a woman calling. Mm. But now that's changing. And I think the generation of football fans will also just, that will now be the norm and that will be the norm going forward. So it's... It's come a long, long way and it's a pretty exciting prospect to be a part of that. So, And it's so exciting to watch uh, all three of you be, be part of this, this wave of, of just wonderful development in, in women's sports media. Uh, Grace, what advice would you give if, if one of these wonderful people here says, oh, I want to be a telly star like you, how do I get your career? What would you <laughs> advise them? Go and play for Cambria United first. <laughs> Cambria United, start tweeting about games. No. <laughs> Holding your pocket. Holding your pocket. No, I think I think the thing about comfort zones is probably where I've seen, as I said, my biggest personal growth. Things, opportunities that pop up that you think, oh shit, that sounds terrifying. Do it. The fact that it sounds terrifying and makes you feel anxious and nervous is probably a good thing and you'll get through it and it will be a huge learning experience as so many of these things are um, but my biggest advice would be put yourself slightly outside of your comfort zone because you also then don't know what opportunities will come from that and that's so often how these things happen you, you say yes to one thing and it might not be exactly what you expected but someone was there listening to you and then they'll call you and say hey I saw you at this thing do you want to go and talk about this thing at this thing and that's how we network and that's how these relationships grow and prosper so do the thing. Brilliant. Anna Dong, we don't have enough hours in our day to cover your whole story. I think you're probably all aware of, of how 
many platforms and can uh, be proficient in and, and excel in. Uh, I just want to share with you the strong word. Excel for sure. <laughs> I just want to share with you the story way back when I can't remember what year it was, and Anne will tell you about the the website itself. But she was she was the world the. The, the women's game uh, for a long period of time. And I remember asking some questions and I think this might have been the World Cup in Canada or the one before. I was like, need some information and I'll have all the inside info so I just need some really quick facts. Uh, I said, I'll come and meet you. Um, and I thought that that was her job. And she went, okay, well, I'm actually at work. I can meet you for coffee in a break. And it was at a law firm, was yeah, it? Yeah. And I was like, are you a lawyer? <laughs> she was like, I work here, I have to pay the bills because <laughs> writing for the women's game doesn't pay. And I just, I, I get so happy when I see how far you've, you've come and in actually being remunerated for a start for, for all your hard work. But give us an insight into how you got into that and why you put all that blood, sweat and tears into something that was paying you nothing. Huh. Funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it goes back to the motto of the women's game, for the love of the game. Um, that's where it all started. I started loving football in 98. France 98 is my most formative football memory. Um, I remember Thierry Henry, who I still love to this day. Um, I remember the French national team um, and I remember waking up very early in the morning and listening to Les and Martin Tyler call the World Cup and I just fell completely in love with it. Um, my brothers played. I often took them to the games or drove them to their own games and I just didn't think it was possible for us. Um, I remember watching the Atlanta 96 Olympics and I do not remember women's football. I remember watching the Sydney 2000 Olympics, do not remember women's football. Um, it just wasn't visible. So when I started in 2005 and um, I have to shout out to Penny Tanner who um, is from Western Australia and she's phenomenal Penny. And she asked me, a 20-year-old, do you want to talk about football on the radio? And much like all of you, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was petrified, completely petrified. But the thing I love about fear, and I, I guess that's something, you know, is always, um, you know, ingrained in me, it makes me want to work harder because I want to do it right because I have the fear. And so I started there and then um, I met Tom Samani and he told me he was a coach and I was like, oh, what coach, what team do you coach? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, the Matildas. I was like, who? <laughs> and so it was, it was literally in a room like this. He came to WA. He was obviously doing some scouting. He'd just been reappointed as the Matildas head coach. Um, I met him in this room and we had a bit of a conversation and I got him on the World Football Program and that's how I started to learn about women's football. From there, I covered the WA State League, which is now the MPL, um, and I was the Female, uh, the women's reporter for that um, and also covered the men's state league. Um, and following that, um, not long after, it was the 2007 Women's World Cup. And I remember just watching it on SBS and just being so completely invested. Honestly, that quarterfinal against Brazil is every moment is seared in my mind. <laughs> and I remember Lauren Colthorpe scoring and I just was running around the house <laughs> and 
almost burnt my dad's shirt that I was ironing at the same time as I was watching the game. Um, and then not long after, it was announced that the W League would start. And all during that time, every single time I wanted to talk about women's football on the radio, I had to go to this website and go to this website and I had to call this person from Capital Football or this person from Football West or this person from, you know, the old days when you had landlines and you'd have to go and call um, to find out what was happening and came to a point where I was like, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of having to spend literally days doing my research when for men's football I could go to the world game and I would find everything. And so I was sitting there and in my room and I was like, I'll start a website. How hard can it be? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and that was the start in in 2008. I started the women's game, um, totally ripped it from the world game. (laughs) Um, And um, that's how I started. It started just in a bedroom in Thornley with a laptop that I've still kept, even though it was died long, long ago. Uh, and I completely fell in love with the women of the game, their stories, and I just always felt like they just deserved so much more. And if, you know, Sam talks about making people care and that was it for me. It was, well, if they're not going to care, I am and hopefully one day you will too. And so that's how I started. And it's really, uh, it's totally come to fruition that instilling love for the game in other people and, and the interest. And as I mentioned, I used to avidly follow Anne's site because I needed so much information <laughs> off her. Otherwise, you were making 200 phone calls yourself. Yes. Um, and you also, I always saw you with a camera around your neck. <laughs> Again, it's necessity. So I first season, I started out, sorry, Getty, I started out paying... <laughs> Basically, I think it was they, – they were really lovely. Like normally a photo is probably about $200 and they were really lovely because they were like, who's this idiot who wants to pay for photos um, of women's football? So they, they used to – they gave me a discounted rate of $80 and I was a law student and I couldn't afford $80 every single time. So the first season I, I kind of, you know, here and then I'd get the photos and then again it was like, well – you know, I, I'd call up and say, you know, to the West Australian, how come you're not putting women's scores and women's stories? Well, I think they were trying to fob me off and they just said, well, we don't have any photos. So I was like, all right, <laughs> how hard could it be? <laughs> exactly. Um, and so my first camera was a Nikon. Um, I had absolutely zero idea what I was doing. Um, I put it on auto. And I just snapped the first, you know, the first season, started snapping the first season of the W League. And I just look back on those photos. One, I'm like, oh, my gosh. But two, what comes through to me is just how young they were, complete babies. Like I remember the first season I would go to watch Perth Glory Women. I went to um, Perth Oval um, or HBF Park as it's now called. And that was where the very first game was. It was Sydney FC versus Perth Glory. I remember, you know, having my very new shiny media accreditation, walking through that gate. There was probably 50 of us there Um, and being so excited that this league was happening. 
Um, and then we very quickly lost 4 0 to Sydney FC. So <laughs> football is pain. Um, <laughs> and then, um, but I just remember that game so vividly. And I remember a 15 year old Sam Kerr flying down the wing. And I'd met Sam two years before when she'd just made the WA state team. Um, and again, it was one of those weird things. Looked up the phone book. I remember phone books. <laughs> um, looked up Kerr. I knew they lived in this certain area and I just called and then I finally got Roxanne Kerr. She's like, who's this? <laughs> I was like, would Sam come into the studio and talk to us about WA State League? And she walked in and she had this fluoro jacket that was like hyper colours, purple, yellow, backwards hat on and um, had a conversation with her and that was her first interview. So didn't know where that would end up and, and here we are, both of us kind of in the same space um, many years later. 15 years later. Going through the phone book to find people is now called stalking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> however, uh, would you change anything? Absolutely not. Um, and the reason is, I know it can sound a little bit, you know, new age, but things do happen for a reason. I think ultimately I think about all the mistakes I made and I think about all the failures I had and I was so blessed to be able to have that all happen in a vacuum. Like nobody remembers those mistakes or those failures. It wasn't as public. It wasn't you you had the time to be able to 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 try things. And even with the women's game, oh man, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, but it was fantastic because I could do it and I met so many incredible people who I'm here today because of them. Like there's absolutely no way I could have continued the women's game without a group of people in there. Um, and one of them eventually joined us, Eric, who's here, um, Sam as well, um, Anna Harrington, um, Liana Baradi, uh, Angelo Bacic. And I think if anything that I'm proud of around the women's game is it's given so many women their start and the ability to write about the game, to gain access to the game, which is so huge, um, to be able to work and make mistakes. Tell me, if uh, we have anyone here that wants to follow you down that path of uh taking photos and, mm. and being sidelined because I've always thought uh, in some of my roles I'm behind the goal yeah. uh, producing our team and just watching the snappers and watching them and I thought that always looks like they're just sitting there waiting for that <laughs> moment. It actually looks really exciting. How do you get into that role because that's an area of the media I have mm. no concept of because they're not all not all of them are employed by no. a person. So there's a lot of freelance work there, isn't there? There is and – to be honest, don't be afraid of that. I know there's one thing that I've seen over the years is there is a real hurry to get to the top and it's great but the thing is when you're at the top, there's pressure, there's expectation, there is a need to get it right. When you're starting a little bit, you've got time 
you've got space. I mean, I still, whenever I get a new camera or I'm learning a new technique, the first thing I go and do is after calling and making sure the right working with children's checks are done, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll contact a local club and I'll be like, can I come and photo, you know, for two to three hours? One, I just love the joy of the game at that age and it just reminds me of why we do what we do and how just football is a simple game at heart. Um, but two, it allows me to continue to learn new techniques and if I stuff it up, it's fine. Um, if I get it right, awesome, you know, and then I'll take that and then go up to the MPL and I'll continue to fine tune that and continue to craft it. Okay, great. I've got it there now. Then I take it to the W League. So I take it through the layers before I get to the Matildas because when I get to the Matildas, I need to, I need to make it sure it's done. Like I do not, like those players deserve the respect of me doing it right. So I'm not practicing on them. I'm, I'm starting down here and that's fine. And that's the point of it takes time. And, you know, I was looking at um, the bid and I was learning portrait photography and lighting, you know, and I look back at those and I was like, oh God, what was I thinking there? Um, but you keep, you keep learning and you keep changing and you keep trying new things. Um, and literally what it is, it's picking up the camera and I always say nowadays that there's almost no excuse not to learn something new because we have YouTube. We have things like Skillshare and, um, you know, LinkedIn.com, which has got, you know, all these great, amazing tutorials that are quite cheap. They're $25 for a month and you can learn how to take portraits. So it's really how much will do you have for it? How much time do you have for it? Because a lot of it takes time. And then the last piece is take your time. And be very glad you're living in an age where you don't have to take the film out of the camera and see it to be developed. <laughs> <laughs> very expensive. Uh, just for the record, I'm still using as my headshot a shot that Anne took of me uh, for a photo call ahead of a W, w League, League season about five years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you've clearly you clearly nailed were, it. You were shining, and, Steph. Uh, and your career has ended in, in what I always felt was the natural place that you at some point were, were going to I'm end up. I'm glad you and, did because I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I always thought, why aren't you working for, at the time, FFA? Because you're doing pretty much all the publicity for the women's game and you're the one shouting these stories from the rooftops. And uh, eventually... You got your foot in the door or were invited in the door. I don't know how that unfolded and you're about to tell us. Uh, but just for the record, for anyone that doesn't know and is now a media manager of women's football as well as a myriad list of other roles and involved in the digital content. And Can you explain this so much better than I'm trying to? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I. the one thing I will say um, just in general is that you never really get to where you are without visible or invisible hands lifting you up. And I always say, if somebody who says, oh, I'm self-made or, you know, I did it all myself, they're lying to themselves. There is somebody there who is giving you that opportunity, giving you that opening and being aware of that and being grateful for that is 
is really, really important. Um, in terms of the hand that I had was, you know, Sarah Walsh saying, stop being an idiot and apply for that job. Because for me, it was like, oh, I'm st I still don't know. I'm still not ready. All the normal female things that we do and say. And she said, just do it. And she was, you know, Sarah, you guys know Sarah. She can be sometimes really blunt. And she was just like, just do it. And so I applied. Um, and I was there for two years with a bid and got to live the amazing moment of us, you know, winning the bid and um, getting ready to prepare for something that's in 58 days' time. <laughs> um, you don't have time to be here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the next bit was, and I remember this so vividly, um, Steph, again, kicking me in the butt and saying, go ask for the job. Because I was like, oh, no, no. She was like, no, go do it. Sarah? No, you. Oh, I couldn't work out why you didn't already have it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had no, that conversation so and you said just go go ask for it. And I think it's also that piece of like just never feeling like you, you can ask for the thing. And so I went to Pete and I said, you know, again, I was really open and honest and I said, I'm not going to be the world's best media manager. I'm not going to be, you know, the person who um, knows everything, but I will do two things. I will work my ass off and I will love this game. And I was just really upfront so that if I did make a mistake, it's like that's a learning opportunity. If I did not quite know something, that's okay. That's a learning opportunity. I think sometimes we see vulnerability as a weakness when actually vulnerability can be a strength because it allows you to open up to people and get their expertise and people want to help you succeed. And so I'm just, I'm always completely open and vulnerable, even with other media managers around the world. You know, I've met some fantastic people and I just learn from them. I'm like, I love what you do. Do you mind teaching me? You know, one of those media managers that He's just so, so open for the amazing job he has done for such a long time is Aaron Heifetz from the US. You know, he's been in that job since 1998. The superstars he has seen go through that team and yet he will answer a WhatsApp message saying, help, how do I do X? Mm. And I think from him I learnt I want to be that person. I want to be that person that people go, help, how do I do X? And I'm like, yep, let's go through it. So vulnerability is incredibly important and it allows you to slowly build up to a place where you do feel more comfortable and you do have an idea of what you're doing. It's such a good point you make because I actually don't remember that moment. And I remember always being stunned that you weren't doing that already. <laughs> uh, but... I think you should always ask or always look for support around you because I've never had anyone ring me and say, can you help me do this, that I've said no to because mm. you just don't. I mean, it's innate human nature that you want to help other people do amazing things as well. And oftentimes I won't be the person, but you can connect them with the right person. Mm. And that's what the network, <clears throat> pardon me, is and that's what it's all about because I find that the uh, the the football space is generally – very very supportive um, and we're going to tell you about a few initiatives uh, that that you guys can get involved in if you want to further your careers in this space or if we've completely turned you off you can leave <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the last one I just want to touch on is the evolution and this is 
not my space. I'm relying on you through. We've spoken a little bit about Dubzone and the streaming already. And can I just tell you, my first experience at a streaming game on Fox was with Grace at <laughs> Manly, Chroma Park. Chroma Park. And <laughs> we were working with, um, it was one of those games that wasn't the main game. So there was a camera. And I said to Grace, oh, if you... Have you worked with these people before? I need to find the producers. Oh, the, no, there's, there's no one here. This guy is, is here. And I went, okay, so what do you reckon? When do we start? Because normally there's a count in your ear. <laughs> so there were no earpieces. There were nothing. And she said, oh, I had him last week. You just, um, when the game kicks off, you start talking. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is new. And I'd like to say that certainly the streaming space is still, it's still a learning environment and it's, and it's getting better. But the space for podcasts mm. and uh, that digital space moves so quickly. Um, what's your advice on on getting engaged with that? Because that, I think that's an, an area where you mm. can play around doing stuff for free. And, I mean, there's a lot of podcasts out there, so yeah. excellent. <laughs> um, the stuff streaming, amazing, and you can watch that as a, a pod as well. And that unbelievable flow of content that, you guys do at Football Australia is I'm like how do you keep up how do you know what do you do how do you get involved yeah I think again it's it's just pick it and go um I think one of the really exciting parts about women's football and women's sport is because we never had access to the actual corridors of information we've had to create our own so when you talk about streaming that's now happening with you know men's sport we did it back in 2010. Like, you guys are just catching up, really. You know, when you talk about, you know, the, the really massive rise in podcasts and, you know, men's football podcasts, yep, did it back in 2013. Um, that was how we got the information out and about in that audio format. So we've had to create all of these spaces to allow us to flow the information to everyone because we didn't have access to those big broadsheets that could get that information and that mass dissemination. So go out there and, and try something new, try something different. You know, I love what you guys did with the ladies league and just going and creating your own and some people will like it. Some people will find it divisive. That's fine. But you will eventually find your people. And I think the last part is, you know, I used to always complain um, to, you know, Stu <laughs> when he was at SBS and, you know, other people, you know, in mainstream media. And I would say, you know, why don't you cover it? And they would always say to me, oh, you know, there's no demand. And my argument always will be, but you guys get to create the demand. You know, you tell people what is important and what to care about because you give it attention. And, you know, Stu was great. He was sympathetic. But, of course, you know, he's got people that he has to report to. And others, it was just like, you know what? Well, we're going to – I'm going to show you there's an audience. And and that's, that's so true. It's funny you mentioned the Ladies League because uh, I'm not a tweeter, but I have a stalker Twitter account just so I can do research. Fair enough. So, <laughs> we have to, everyone has to try. So, okay, after this, we all have to try and track but, down Steph Brands' burner account. Oh, good luck. 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't even think I know what the handle is. Is um, it, is it um, Beth Stance? Is yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. Guy incognito. <laughs> but even, you know, I would read all of that content and, you know, because it's all different information from different angles. And you actually mentioned Stu, and Stu is now my boss uh, at, at ESPN, but he enjoyed the Far Post pod and it became an, an ESPN tag product. Yeah. It did. On the Matilda's doco, no less. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> Being listened to by James Johnson on his little car. It's crazy. Um, yeah, no, look, digital media um, is, is it's the new frontier. Um, mainstream journalism, particularly in the newspaper and the broadcast space, is going like that. So podcasts, digital storytelling, websites, all of this stuff is where if you want to enter into the industry, you have to move into that space. At the ABC recently, we had this huge restructure because they've finally realised that digital media is the future. Five years is a little bit too late. Um, and it's like with these massive organisations, it's like trying to turn the Titanic sometimes. It's really, really hard to get them away from the stuff that they're used to. Um, but what I really echo what Anne said because women's football, we've never been in mainstream media before. We've never been in the newspapers. We've never been on radio or in broadcast. So we had to build this digital space for ourselves. We had to build the websites. We had to build the podcasts. We had to do all this stuff. And even these days, I still find myself having to cross-check different websites of statistics because even in that, like I think that's another really big space that women's football needs to move into is actually the data side of things. Because mm. the men's game, you can look up anything like that, and you have absolute accuracy. But <laughs> with women's football, it's still really difficult, right? So, um, but there's so much potential. That's what's so exciting about it because the digital space is constantly evolving. It's constantly new. And you see um, mastheads like The Athletic who pop up who are not associated with any physical newspaper, but they have become one of the most important spaces for football writing. And they can do experimental stuff. They can do long-form storytelling. They can do investigations. They can do lots of really mm. interesting stuff. And I think for the women's game now, we're starting to move into a, a space in terms of storytelling where it's not just, oh, here's what happened at this game, which no one else saw. It's actually telling the stories that men's football has been telling about itself for a very, very long time. It's about history. It's about character. It's about all this stuff that's literary, stuff that makes people care about it rather than just the stuff that happened. So it's a really cool space to be working in. Um, and, and that's why I don't really recommend people doing journalism courses necessarily because I don't think that they uh, equip you to really be on the cutting edge of the digital media space anymore. The universities, thank you for your support. Uh, <laughs> with the, uh, just just before we, we open it to the floor, uh, Grace, you mentioned sitting there tweeting or, or putting stuff on social media, it's Insta, TikTok, whatever, from the stands. What what did you find? <laughs> were you, not, not a TikToker. Um, what did you find got the most traction? What what drew the most attention? Because sometimes I feel like oh, we're here, which will never happen under Anne's watch, we're hearing from a player on the sideline or on, in the stands. Times with, have changed. She knows what's what. She knows what's going on. Um, what's the, the key for a women's football story? What did you find really hit the mark? This is going back a long way, Steph. This is, we're talking <laughs> 10 or so years ago. You're having me dig into my memory back. You were 12. <laughs> Thereabouts. Um, I think it would have been 
the little elements at this point, Twitter, how many characters were we allowed to tweet back in the day? Like Ooh. very little. Well, it was like 180. So wasn't I had to be it? sharp. Like I had to be really succinct. 140. 140. There it is. So yeah. the tweets had to be sharp. Not having Twitter, I don't know. Tight. But if I if I recall correctly, it was it was tweets that would be not just you know goal so and so scored, but elements that had character about players and their personalities and there is one tweet I remember like it's it's dumb but I remember it sticking out in my memory because it was Perth against Canberra United and Lisa Devanna picked up the ball in the middle of the park and I went to write a tweet about it but she was so quick that I couldn't finish the tweet before the play had passed and that ended up being my tweet and people <laughs> loved it because it was you know you know Lisa you know she's quick yeah. she know you know she's a real firecracker and those kind of things that you know, dig into people's sort of characters and capture the moment. And how has that evolved when you talk about the dub zone? There's actually a social media person on that talking about the social media. Yeah, and I think to Sam's point, that's such an important part of our digital age, sometimes in not a healthy way and you have to (laughs) sort of filter through some of the shit because there's a lot of it on there Mm. and you have to sort of self-protect in some of that as well, especially when you are in the public-facing world of the media. But there's so much good content that's been pushed out by people here tonight as well that's really important to our game. And these are the spaces as well that I think that like because there are so few full-time paid opportunities in mainstream organisations, a lot of the really interesting content is coming from people in those spaces, right? It's coming Mm. through social media. It's coming through TikTok. Like TikTok is so creative. It's so interesting. It's so vibrant. I feel so old. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing. And that's that's like sort of how we all entered into this space and became the people that we are, right? Because there was so much potential. We had to basically make up who like our jobs. Mm. We had to come up with it ourselves because (laughs) it wasn't available to us. When I started the women's game in 2008, um, Facebook was two years old. The first time I got a Twitter account was in 2010 and Twitter was two years old. So I always say say that the women's sports story is the story of technology because if websites weren't easier to build in 2008, I wouldn't have built a website. If Facebook wasn't easy to join, if Twitter wasn't easy to be able to put out the information, I wouldn't have joined it. I mean, I still remember... 2010 hasn't got many likes or tweet retweets, but I mean, that's the time it was, you know, Australia has won the Asian cup and that was a moment in time where, you know, might not have been watching, but we were able to get that information out and the Americans were like, oh, congratulations and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, your parents used to always say, some of you are a bit young, but, you know, my parent, mum, used to always say, you know, You'll never meet real people on the internet and the internet is where I met my best friends and that's the connection it also allows um, to happen and through this sport. We've got some um, really fabulous opportunities which I want to talk to you about now and I'm going to get Anne to talk to one from FA and I don't know if the guys want to talk to the to the other ones. But uh, first of all, can I ask you to just give these three amazing chicks a big round of applause. <laughs> Uh, it's so wonderful to hear your stories and seriously, Google stalk them because there's a lot more to their stories than we were able Google to get stalk. into. Google <laughs> about ageing, Steph. God, Google stalking? Whatever. <laughs> Look so them up. photos from 2008, please do not Google stalk yeah. <laughs> Oh, I am posting those. The rowback. Um there's a program in uh, in Melbourne that I'm sure you're all aware was uh, making the call. So, yeah, uh, fabulous program, and we're trying to get uh, 
sort of some opportunities around in our state. So we're trying to, to offer a, a bunch of different avenues and pathways for people to get into uh, either reporting on women's sport or women uh, transgender, non-binary into roles that they didn't see a pathway in before. Uh, and can you talk to the FA side of that? Yeah, so we've got our game, um, which is our women's um, culture and also storytelling arm. And part of that is we have a women and non-binary persons and media program. Um, it allows for five um sorry, six uh, women and non-binary persons to be involved in the game in the photography and the comms and digital um, uh, digital media space. Uh, luckily this year um, we've got two intakes. We've got a current intake happening um, and they've hopefully enjoyed the fact that they've been involved in the Cup of Nations. They've been part of the, you know, the unity pitch as well as they'll be part of the upcoming trophy tour and we're really excited that they're going to be part of the World Cup as well. So they'll get media accreditation to help build out their CVs. For the second intake, that starts in um, September. And we're excited that they're going to be part of the Olympic qualifiers, um, as well as the Para Asian Cup in Melbourne as well. Um, and the second half of the year, there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, hopefully the second part of the Olympic qualifiers. So the whole aim of this is to help build up the CV by giving access and entry into the media spaces that are often quite gate kept. Um, and some media allowed me to walk straight through. So um, that's all changed. And we just want to make sure that that gate keeps being open. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Football New South Wales Community Podcast. If you or anyone you know are interested in exploring opportunities in football media, get in touch with us via the email media at footballnsw.com.au or join the Football New South Wales Our Game Media Network, which you can find via the media menu on the Football New South Wales website. Mm -hmm.